0: Hey, everybody, welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm here with Terry Fakes. And we are going to do the book of Joel today. And one of the reasons for that is we were tallying to start off the new year. We were tallying the books that we've done on the books of the Bible overviews. And currently we have seven remaining in the New Testament. Two of those are second and third John. So that that may be one podcast on those, but uh, those are second and third John. And then some others, and we've really got some heavy hitters. So we for example, we've got the Gospel of John, Ephesians, Galatians, Hebrews, and the book of Revelation. So we've got some big ones coming up. And then we have 14 books left in the Old Testament. And of those 14, seven are in the minor prophets. So I think we've discovered a little area of oversight on our part. We have not evenly distributed the minor prophets. So we're going to do a few minor prophets over the next few weeks to get caught up on that aspect.
1: Well, uh, just a clarification, uh, I've learned not to assume that everybody's read the Bible a lot, because when I became a Christian, I had never read the Bible. Uh, What's the difference between the major prophets and minor prophets? Major prophets are generally a little bit better read. Minor prophets are
0: a little more boring. <laughs> really, the, that's a pretty modern way of classifying them. Um, the major prophets are what we refer to as Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel and Lamentations because it was written by Jeremiah and included next to Jeremiah is included in the major prophets right. whereas the minor prophets are all the books after that to the end of the old testament so starting with Daniel Hosea Joel Amos Obadiah Jonah Micah and Nahum Habakkuk Zephaniah Haggai Zechariah and Malachi are the minor prophets now they are shorter they mm-hmm. are um, a little bit more focused maybe than Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. are. Those are pretty broad, sweeping books. And we call them the minor prophets accordingly. Now, that isn't to say that that division isn't an old division, just the nomenclature is, because actually you see those minor prophets all grouped into what's called the book of the 12 early on in the Old Testament as a division unto itself.
1: Yes, and as you know, just to uh, elucidate on this a little bit, That's all, though, the idea of what we call the prophets, you know, starting with Isaiah to the end of the Old Testament, you know, the four major prophets and then the 12 minor prophets. That's not the way the Jews divide their Bible. They divide it between the Torah, first five books, and then the prophets and the writings. But in the prophets for them are all of these that we're talking about, except Daniel, Daniel is not considered a prophet in the way they organize their books. But for example, Joshua, the book of Joshua is in prophets, the former prophets. So they, they actually divide their Bible uh, a little differently. Same books, but they divide it up a little differently. Well, I think of the portions of the Bible,
0: probably the minor prophets, as we refer to them, are one of the least studied sections of the Bible. Mm-hmm. It's typically difficult and a little bit history intensive to figure out what the setting is for some of these prophets. And they can sound very redundant. We're going to do our best to bring out the unique features of each of these prophets. And I want to point out to you that actually one of the first things we ever did at So We Speak was publish a series of articles. I think they were derived from a series that you taught called uh-huh. the Tales of the Nevi'im. So Navi is the Hebrew word for prophet and when you make it plural, it becomes Nevi'im. And sometimes you'll hear Nebi'im uh, as well. But anyway, that's that's back on the blog at So We Speak. And you have an article for every one of the minor prophets in that series. And I should point out, I believe there's a map in every one of those. There is a map attached to every single one of those. <laughs> so <clears throat> we're going to start today with Joel. And one of the reasons for that is... Joel is close to the beginning. And what's interesting is, roughly speaking, the minor prophets are arranged by length, but not exactly. And that's one of the things you see with Joel. It comes right after uh, Hosea, which is one of the longer books. And it comes right before Amos, which is also one of the longer books. And then Joel is a short prophecy. right? And I, I wonder, I don't know that anybody knows for certain um, exactly why the order was derived, but I think some of the order is through importance. And if we're looking at the way that these books played in the overarching themes of the Old Testament, um, and then we see in hindsight with the New Testament, the overarching importance of Joel being fulfilled in the New Testament, it plays an outsized role in the scope of the Old Testament.
1: I agree. Um and this is going to factor in just a moment in argument that you and I are going to have about when this book was written. But if you think about the way a scroll works, obviously it's got a fixed length to it. When you start writing a scroll, you write the longest books first, because the last thing you want to do is get near the end of the scroll, start a book and like, oops, I couldn't finish it on this scroll. That was really not a good thing. And so unsurprisingly, a lot of books are arranged on scrolls from longest to shortest. It is interesting that Joel, a short book, is tucked in here at the beginning of the scroll. So that's a very good uh, observation you make. So who is Joel and what's your view on when he's prophesying, when he's preaching? Well, we don't know anything about Joel,
0: really. And this is going to be a common theme in the Minor Prophets is Other than a very select few of these prophets, we don't know much about who these guys are, what they were doing before or outside of this prophecy. And Joel is certainly one of those. We actually don't know anything about him other than what his name means, which means Yahweh is God. And other than that, all we know is the content of his book. He's never mentioned anywhere else. He's never described anywhere else. We don't have any historical documents for him. So what you have to do is look at the context clues to see when you think he was writing and where he was stationed. Was he prophesying to the Northern or the Southern kingdoms, to both? What other armies and empires is he talking about? Uh huh. So I think it is a little ambiguous on when he wrote, but I'm for, for the sake of this podcast, I'm going to say that I think probably it's most likely he wrote shortly after the exile. And I'll give you a couple of reasons for that. The first one is in chapter three, verses two through three. He speaks as though the nation of Israel is already scattered. So I will gather all the nations and bring them to the valley of Jehoshaphat. I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people, my heritage, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and cast lots for my people. So that certainly seems like the exile has already happened. Um, The uh, another reason is there's no king mentioned in this book. Usually, as you'll see, if you go through the minor prophets, they'll say during the reign of Uzziah or during the reign of Jeroboam the second or something. In that case, they're dating their prophecy to a certain period in Israel's history. Here, Joel doesn't ever mention a king, which doesn't mean for sure, but is, is a likely inference that there wasn't a king at that point. And the third thing I'll say is the temple is viewed in a positive sense. Sacrifices are viewed in a positive sense. Whereas in the pre-exilic um, prophets, you often get a negative look at the temple and um, <clears throat> the sacrificial system. So for well, those three reasons, it's possible, I think likely, that Joel is prophesying after the exile. So that'd be after 586.
1: Well, and all three of those, I completely agree with. Those are really good clues. And I just, I don't happen to share your conclusion, but I don't argue with the points that you're making. I think those are very good points. And as a reminder, uh, 586 BC was a turning point when the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple and dispersed the Jews. Uh, around the world. And of course, there were no Jewish kings when you mentioned that he doesn't put in the, in such and such a year of the reign of so-and-so. Well, after that, and post-exile, after the destruction of the temple, uh, there is no king. So everything you said is good. I'll give you uh, three reasons for thinking it's shortly before the exile. Uh, one is in this book, it mentions, and you get judgments on Tyre, Sidon, Philistia, the Philistines, Egypt, and Edom. And those are predominantly pre-exilic enemies of, of uh, Israel, of Judah, and not so much post-exilic. Again, that none of these things are conclusive. These are just clues. Mm-hmm. Secondly, uh, where the book of Joel is. And it's unusual to have a short book tucked in next to the long books at the beginning of the scroll But I wonder, is that because Joel is chronologically around the time of Amos who follows, which is before the exile. So again, nothing dogmatic there, but possibility. And then finally, it seems unlikely to me that if this is after the exile, you would not see some kind of lament about the temple. So those are a few reasons that make me think it's probably shortly before the exile. But I could go either way because this is clearly detective work and a little bit of a matter of opinion. Right. No, and I think those are strong points as well. I think probably the
0: strongest point for a pre-exilic date is, uh, number one, as you said, the geographic situation does lend itself to a pre-exilic date, especially thinking about the fact that the day of the Lord is the main theme of this book. Usually in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord is pointing to the exile, the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, what could be happening here is that the prophecies uh, that seem like destruction has already occurred could be pointing towards the northern kingdom, which is where uh, some of this prophecy is focused anyway. Um, And then other parts of it are uh, pointing towards the future destruction in 586, or we could see that all of the destruction has taken place. Both kingdoms have fallen post 586. It's difficult to say, but I think probably, as you mentioned, those are strong arguments for pre, I think probably, like I said, the the strongest argument for post is the passage in chapter three that seems like the, the nation of Israel and Judah has already been scattered. So we don't really know. It doesn't make a huge difference in the interpretation of the book. Although it certainly will influence it. This is one of those things where it's not, it's not that it doesn't matter. It's that it can it can be construed to make sense both ways, but it's certainly going to take on a different flavor if it's before or after the exile.
1: I, I agree. And you know, if, if you don't mind, I'll jump right in here. And I want to just cherry-pick a little thread through this book and reinforce what you just said about there are some key ideas in here that undoubtedly were preached at a certain time for a certain purpose, but are very, very generalized ideas about both Israel and I think very applicable to us. So let me jump in and just take a thread through this. Uh, First is in chapter one, verse four, he talks about an invasion of locusts. Now, some commentators say this is metaphorical for an army is going to invade. Entirely possible. Others say, no, it's literal. There's going to be a great famine. But in any case, it says what the cutting locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. And so you obviously get the idea of just total judgment or total uh, destruction. It's just really hard times are coming. And then in verse 13, you see uh, lament. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests, and wail, O ministers of the altar. In other words, the response to God's judgment or the response to this cataclysm is lament. In chapter 2 verse 1, you see this described as the day of the Lord, which we can dive into in just a minute. I'd I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. But it says, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. Talking about this, this judgment, if you will, this cataclysm is going to be something that the Lord brings in a judgmental way. Then in verse 12 of chapter two, you see what is the response to that? It says, return to the Lord, repent. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning, rend your hearts, not your garments. So you get this idea of God's judgment on sin. Let me generalize this a little bit. And then you see the response to that is repentance, a turning, rending your heart not your garment. And in verse 18, then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord said to his people, behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil. So you see a restoration as a result of the repentance. One of my favorite passages is in chapter 224, talking about this restoration. It says, in the future, your threshing floors will be full of grain, The vats will overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the locust has eaten up. That's just one of the most beautiful passages of restoration to me. And then it goes on with a judgment of the nations. Those who have not repented will be judged. So I know that this is a specific prophecy about a specific time, but I also think that it is God playing out a general theme of judgment repentance, restoration. So that's one way I read through this book is just seeing those highlights and what's the movement or the flow of this book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't disagree with that at all. I think that
0: that is uh, a very good way to read this book. And really, the only difference is where these themes that have been identified are going to be applied historically. So to take a little bit different historical application here, you, you see the role of judgment, particularly on Israel in chapters one and two, as you mm-hmm. mentioned. And then you have a brief interlude of restoration, which we'll talk about here in a little bit because of its New Testament importance. And then you have the judgment turn away from Israel onto the nations in chapter three, where there's more of an external kind of judgment. Right. Now, reading this in light of uh, a post-exilic, time period would make us think a little bit differently about how this is applied. So it's the same judgment, same passages, um, same kinds of images that are being used, but applied to a slightly different context. So instead of thinking of the destruction of the temple in 586, we think about how the New Testament writers are applying this prophecy to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, for example, or in the destruction of all things at the end in the eschatological view, that we see in the book of Revelation or in 1 Thessalonians. So in both cases, we have temple destruction, judgment on Israel, restoration of God's people, and then a final or more national destruction of the powers of the earth that that Joel is prophesying. And the interesting thing about most Old Testament prophecies is in some way or another, some some people call this a typological fulfillment. Some people just call this a recurring or a progressive fulfillment, Mm -hmm. is you'll have a specific instance of a prophecy being fulfilled in history. And then later in the Bible, you'll see that that fulfillment was actually just a preview of an even greater fulfillment that's going to happen. So uh, a good example of this is the arguments that people have over Isaiah chapter 7, the virgin shall be with child. Okay, so people say, well, that's actually not a prophecy about Christ's birth. That's a prophecy about Isaiah's own time. And most of the time we come to prophecies like that, we say something like, it's possible that that prophecy was fulfilled in part historically in Isaiah's time and that he was looking ahead because of the work of the Holy Spirit to the ultimate fulfillment of that prophecy, which was the... Uh, Virgin Mary conceiving through the Holy spirit and giving birth to Jesus Christ. So that can happen in these books. And that's not, that's not just to say we don't know. So we think it can apply everywhere. God tends to do things in similar ways over and over and over again. And that's why you see similar language. And there's a lot of examples of this language in the book of Joel in the old Testament at multiple places and in the new Testament. So if we were going to take some of this and see how it's used elsewhere in Scripture. For example, the trumpet that you see in two one. So Joel says, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. And he says, he says that several times actually through this book, that a trumpet will be blown to warn people of coming judgment. Th- that's a pretty familiar phrase in the New Testament as well. So a trumpet is blown in First Corinthians 15 when we're talking about the resurrection of the dead. In First mm-hmm. Thessalonians 4.16, when believers come and meet Christ in the sky. In Revelation 8, you have the seven trumpets which are being blown that foretell the destruction of uh, the wrath of God. So mm-hmm. this is a familiar phrase that's picked up from Joel that's signaling destruction when destruction is about to occur. Uh, another thing would be the nearness of judgment. So this is in chapter 1, verse 15. So Joel says... Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and the destruction from the Almighty, it comes. This is really familiar to you if you've read the book of Revelation recently, which is, Behold, I am coming soon, or you must write about the things which are soon to to, to, to come to pass. Uh, the third thing is the darkening of the sun and the heavenly bodies in the book of Joel is often interpreted as a sign of judgment upon the nations. So when the sun is darkened, it is the reigning power. When the moon is darkened, oftentimes it's judgment on Israel. Israel is on a lunar calendar. So these descriptors, whether they're in 586, in 70 AD, in the end times, are all familiar phrases for us when we read the Bible to know this is the kind of judgment that we're getting ready to expect. This is the kind of destruction. This is the kind of geopolitical turmoil that we should
1: be expecting when we see these phrases. Well, that's a great, great point because you, you see the connectivity from a little book like Joel. And then once you see that, you realize, oh, there's a connectivity. the use of these symbols, the use of these phrases over and over. You know, another good example of of something that's likely fulfilled in the time near Joel, but also later is the famous passage in Joel 2.28. This is in the book of Joel, this is the point where uh, judgment on Israel, the day of the Lord, chapter one, the repentance, you know, call for repentance, you know, turn your heart back to me, and then you see the restoration. So this is in the restoration portion and 228 reads, and it shall come to pass afterward, after this restoration, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men will see visions. And it goes on uh, to say that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So there's undoubtedly in my mind, he's talking about whether it's before the destruction of the temple in 586 or after, it's talking about as Israel turns back, as the Jews turn back to God, they are reconciled and and experience what this is describing, an intimacy with God. So Mm -hmm. I I have no doubt that this is descriptive of the situation at that time. But the New Testament uh, takes this phrase and doesn't deny that it could have happened at that time, but actually says it's being fulfilled in a bigger way. Yeah. In Acts chapter
0: two, you see this passage quoted at the day of Pentecost. And Peter says, this is the fulfillment of this passage in Joel two, that the spirit that comes on the day of Pentecost. So this is when the disciples are praying and waiting. The spirit comes like a rushing wind and tongues of fire descend. And they start speaking in tongues and the people think that they're drunk. And then Peter stands up and says, it's only mid morning. Okay. There's something else going on here and gives this big sermon about the fulfillment of God's plan in Christ. He says, this passage on those days, I will pour out my spirit has come now. This is the big fulfillment of right. this prophecy. Right. And the thing that's kind of interesting about that is right afterwards, you see, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke the sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So one of the ways that differentiates the way you read this book is if you think that that's a chronological sequence or not. If you think that maybe the spirit being poured out and then destruction happening is the destruction of Israel and Judah in 586, or if you think the fulfillment is in Acts chapter 2, following that in the same way that Jesus prophesies in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew uh, 23 and 24, you have the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And it's possible that there's a reference to both of those things. But this is kind of why people have differing opinions about where this might be manifesting historically. What we're more concerned with is the Bible interprets this passage in one particular instance, that the Spirit has come on the day of Pentecost and that people are doing exactly what's described in verses 28 and 29. This is the coming and the consolation of Israel through the
1: sending of the Holy Spirit and the founding of the church. I completely agree. And and I love this because you see that, and this is God's design of Scripture, is it makes sense on its own and in its time. And yet there are these this plan, these themes, this connectivity—why? Because God foresaw and and accomplished all these things with the themes in mind. There is one theme I'd love to get your take on, and we mentioned the Day of the Lord, but the Day of the Lord appears several times in Scripture. And what are your thoughts on what does the Day of the Lord refer to? Is it one thing? Is it one type of thing? What are your thoughts on that phrase? Well, I think the Day of the Lord can be broadly conceived as the
0: judgment of of God. And in this case, in particular, on his own people. So the, the destruction of the temple is the day of the Lord. Now, in the New Testament, especially, people are divided over whether the day of the Lord refers to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD or the final judgment of God. And this gets into what your eschatological views are. So, which which we are gearing up for in what will no doubt be a (laughs) multi-podcast overview of the book of Revelation. But if you're what's called a preterist or a partial preterist, you believe that the day of the Lord occurred, maybe fully occurred at the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And so you tend to read these as, a cosmic and spiritual description of physical destruction against Israel. Now, if you're a futurist or a dispensationalist or something like that, you tend to read these as pointing to the final judgment of God, the end time destruction of the earth, of the enemies of God, of the people who have rebelled rebelled against him. And I'm not saying that those people don't believe that the temple was destroyed or that this wasn't indicating that there might be destruction, but the final and focal point of the day of the Lord is the final and eschatological destruction of, uh, of the enemies of God.
1: And then the, you know, there are four major views, the way you look at Revelation major views. But the third that you didn't mention that we've been talking about, frankly, is what's called a symbolic view or an idealist view or spiritual view. And it again, it doesn't really disagree with the others, but it emphasizes the recurring nature of what God says. So in other words, the answer might be all of the above in the sense that the day of the Lord is a recurring idea of judgment through various times. Mm -hmm. It's not a way to say the Bible is not literal. And it's not really a disagreement with the other two points of view. It simply says that perhaps this is a recurring theme. And I think all of those that we just talked about are helpful ways to read the Bible. Right. Yeah. And I would say if you're just reading this and you're thinking, I'm not trying
0: to figure out when the world's going to end. I'm just trying to get through my Bible reading plan. I think (laughs) a, a moderate approach to this is whenever you see language like stars being cast down, sun being turned to blood, moon being blotted out, day of the Lord coming, the fury and anger of the Lord being expressed. Think big time destruction, either in the history of Israel, in the New Testament or at the end times. That's what it's always signaling is big time geopolitical destruction. And that's a pretty good rule of thumb to get through these passages and then be able to make a little bit more sense on where you think they're specifically applied. Um, I wanted to turn to a couple of the famous passages in this book. And I, I wanted to point out two of them. Probably the most famous is the one that we just covered, the one that's quoted in the book of Acts. But there's two others I just wanted to point out. The first one is in chapter three, verse 10. And... It says, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. The reason I think this is interesting is because it is the exact reverse of a passage that you see in Isaiah and then quoted from Isaiah likely in the book of Micah. So in Isaiah chapter two, it says, then you will beat your swords into plowshares and your spears into pruning hooks and people will learn war no more. And in Micah chapter four, that's the same thing. In fact, a lot of people think that Micah is a student of and is quoting the book of Isaiah. Mm -hmm. So you have on uh, I was struck by the comparison to Ecclesiastes, which we did a few weeks ago, which is a time for war and a time for peace. Mm -hmm. Um, Here you have the time for war. The, The plowshares have got to go back to swords. And then in Isaiah, when he's prophesying about the new heavens and the new earth you have the swords going back into plowshares. And I thought that's a nice little um, way to link these books together. And then the last thing I wanted to point out on these passages is one of the very last portions of this book in chapter three, verse 18. You do get a picture of restoration at the end of this book, as well as in the middle And it also resembles what you're going to read about in the book of Isaiah. It says, and in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. This really sounds like the latter parts of Isaiah and certain parts of the book of Zechariah that prophesy a fountain or waters breaking forth here, sweet wine and milk, which are flowing through the land. And that reminds us of the final promise of God's peace that comes from Christ reigning with his people forever. This is almost a vision of what the new heavens and the new earth are going to look like, what the new Jerusalem looks like as a renewed garden of Eden. And um, the other thing that this brought to mind here is just the power of life that comes when God restores his people. And so in Zechariah, what you see is when the shepherd is pierced, there is a river that comes out and waters the earth. And, and of course, we take that typologically to think of Jesus' side being pierced and right. blood and water running out and him bringing life. Um, there's a lot of applications to this, but that that's a great passage
1: at the end of this book. Well, and I'd close with two thoughts. One is kind of an advertisement for a read through the Bible plans, What whatever kind of read through the Bible. You just made several connections in what you just said. Phrases, you know, turn your swords into plowshares. Then later you'll see, oh, wait, I've heard that before, but now it's plowshares into swords. And you'll see the day of the Lord. And as you read through the Bible year after year, you remember these little connections. And that's how you grow in the depth of understanding. I'm not talking about grow in Bible trivia here. I'm just talking about you realize deep down that you begin noticing connections between phrases and things that happen. And I think that's one of the ways that our faith is deepened by just constant reading of the Bible is God makes those connections in our mind. You know, one of the, one of my favorite verses in this book is also at the very end. It's in chapter three, verse 16, but just listen to this in general. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel in that little, uh, verses there just give you this image of the all-powerful mighty God and yet the God who loves and cares for his people what a beautiful little encapsulation of God Mm -hmm.
0: thanks for listening to the so we speak podcast if you like what you hear go ahead and leave a comment leave a review email us tell us what you like about it tell us what you'd improve about it Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.